Reading from Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. Matthew 19, 16. And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I'll pray. God, we do thank you that all things are possible with you. And we need you, God. And we come together this morning because of that need. And because we know that, that you are the source, Lord, of all that we desire and long for and need. And so we yield to you again, and we ask that you'd speak to us, work in us, God, of your good pleasure for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in the last part here now, chapter 19 of Matthew. And this section that I just read is often called the story of the rich young ruler. And that's because he was rich, and he was young, and he was a ruler, in case you didn't know. I was at Home Depot buying paint this week, and, um, and I'm looking at two different brands of paint, and there's a young 20-something girl helping me out. And one brand was 50% more expensive than the other. And so I, I said to the girl, why does this one cost more than this one? And she said, because this one is more expensive than that one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, that helps nothing. <laughs> I thought, you've been working in the paint department too long, girl. Some things are very obvious. He's called the rich young ruler because he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler. Before this section, there's a, there's a, there's a little paragraph here, and I'm not skipping over it. We're going to look at it. Just didn't read it for the morning reading. But it says that some, beginning of verse 13, some children were brought to him so that he may lay his hands on them and pray for them. And his disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them. From coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So that's basically just a reminder of what was said at the beginning of chapter 18, that the kingdom of God belongs to children. Now that's very important as an introduction to what we're about to read here with the rich young ruler. And because this guy comes to him, he's not saved. He knows he's not saved. 
and he's essentially asking, how can I be saved? Well, we know the answer to that. Become like a little child, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children. So it says, verse 16, Behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? Now, you can't help but like this guy. Um, he has some self-awareness that he, he, despite all of his goodness and efforts and religiosity, he's a man who is self-aware aware enough to know that he does not have eternal life. That's a good thing. There are a lot of people that I would, would say probably don't know. They've never even wondered whether they are in possession of eternal life or not. But this man knew that. And I think that all people ought to know this. Maybe they've just never taken the time to sit down and just think, do I possess eternal life or not? But I believe that is a question that God wants on our hearts and he is more than eager to answer that question, either yes or no, we either possess eternal life or we do not. There's other places in Scripture that would indicate that it was more than just this young man who was aware enough of his own spiritual condition to know that he did not possess eternal life. We read in Acts 19, Paul finds some people in Ephesus, Jewish people, and he didn't know whether they were saved or not. They were religious people. They had heard um, certain things, but Paul just, just cut to the chase and he says, have you received the Holy Spirit? He didn't say, have you placed your faith in Christ? Do you understand that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead? He just says, do you have the Holy Spirit? And these men looked at Paul and said, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul goes, well, that's a pretty good indication you don't know the Lord. And, and so, but he asked a question of self-assessment. Do you have the Holy Spirit? And they were able to answer as, as unbelievers, no. We come to Romans chapter, God bears witness with our spirit that we belong to him. And so that's subjective, but nonetheless true. That when a person belongs to Jesus, the Holy Spirit says to that person, you're mine, you belong to me. I know a lady that, that walked away from the Lord, and she spent years telling people that she was not saved, never had been saved, was not saved, did not know the Lord, did not want to know the Lord. All the while, the Holy Spirit was saying to her, you're mine, you're mine. I know you're mine, you know you're mine. You can say whatever you want, but you belong to me. And so when she came back to the Lord, that was her testimony. She says, I knew that I was lying. The Spirit of God was saying to me, you're mine. So the Spirit of God is in the world, John um, tells us, the Gospel of John, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit of God is actively at work. And any unbeliever ought to be able to answer the question, do you have eternal life? And they would have to answer the question as an unbeliever, I don't. I do not have eternal life. So this man comes running to Jesus, Mark says, and says, how can I have eternal life? And wouldn't you love that? I mean, when was the last time you had somebody run up to you and say, how can I have eternal life? How can I be saved? 
I mean, we'd be going, wow, my prayers have been answered. Wait till next Sunday and I can tell everybody about this. And if we did like Paul in Acts 16 where the Philippian jailer says, how can I be saved? Remember Paul's answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. That's not what Jesus says. This is amazing. This man was fruit ready to pick. How can I have eternal life? But Jesus knew this man was not quite as ready as it seemed. And so Jesus says to him, first of all, why are you calling me good? Good teacher, how can I have eternal life? Excuse me, why are you calling me good? Now, one way to approach this is to say that Jesus is wanting this man to see that Jesus is God. Because if Jesus is good, and clearly he was, then it can only be because he's God, because Jesus is going to say in the next breath, only God is good. Why are you calling me good? And so it could very well be that Jesus is wanting to have this man face the truth of Christ's identity, that he is God. I'm good with that. I think there may be something else that Jesus is doing, and that's that he wants this man to think about his, under, his own understanding of goodness. Goodness. Because this man, this rich young ruler, essentially sees himself as a good man who does not have eternal life. And so Jesus is going, well, let's just start with what is good. And he wants this man to see he's not as good as he thinks. Is there a harder person to reach for Christ than a good man? I don't think so. A good man is often the last one to come to faith in Christ. Many people have said, the man that is in the gutter sucking up his own vomit is probably closer to Jesus than the person who comes and sits in the pew on Sunday morning. Because that person in the gutter has no deception about himself. Whereas the person coming to church every Sunday may think that he's saved. And he has never placed his faith in Christ alone for salvation. So this passage of Scripture is truly for the churchgoer. For the person that's been raised in a Christian home who's gone to church his whole life, that doesn't make you saved. I love getting reference forms from our European students who apply to Bible school. One of the questions that we ask of the references is how long have they been saved? How long have they been a Christian? And many times the Europeans answer, well, from birth. Oh, good. We're going to have, you know, this would be interesting when this student shows up. Now, the students don't necessarily say that about themselves, but the references often do because in, in many places, not just in Europe, but in particular in Europe, if, if you grew up going to church and if you were baptized as an infant, then that's when you became a Christian. Sorry, that's not right. You can be born a Muslim but you cannot be born a Christian. Birth doesn't make you a Christian. John chapter 1, John's very clear and says that those who believe in him, those who receive him, 
have the right to become children of God. And that we are not born of flesh. We are not born of the will of man. We are not born by natural birth. So it's not by what we do. It's not what others do. And it's not by blood. It's not being born a Christian. Nobody is born, brought into this world a Christian. We come into this world separated from God, not united to Him. So Jesus is not nearly um, as excited about this man as you and I would be. So why are you calling me good? There's only one that's good, and that's God. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So there are hypothetically, are two ways to be saved. One is to earn it, and the other is to receive it. Two ways to receive eternal life, earn it or receive it. How many of you think you can earn it? <laughs> Good, no hands go up. You can't earn it. It is impossible to earn salvation. So when Jesus is saying, do these things, I think he's trying to bring this man to the futility of even trying. How do we know that it's impossible to be good enough to be saved? Look at a couple references with me. If you'll go first to the, to the book of Romans, in chapter 3, Paul's very clear here, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No flesh will be justified on his sight, in his sight on the basis of keeping the law. None, not a single person. Couldn't be much clearer than that. Now, if you go over to Galatians, Galatians is kind of a condensed version of Romans in some respects. In Galatians chapter 2, you can turn my pages here. Paul says in verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And then chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. So Scripture is very clear. You cannot earn your salvation. It is the gift of God. So if you think you can earn it, we'll just keep trying. Good luck with that. Now, if we just look at the law as a bunch of external rules of our behavior, you could deceive yourself into thinking that you are saved. Paul said about himself in Philippians chapter 3, that as regard to the law, he was found to be blameless. Well, that's a very external way of looking at things. We've already seen from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is much more concerned than just with the externals. Hatred in your heart for your brother? You're a murderer. Look on a woman with lust? You're an adulterer. 
And so the law has never been just about the externals. So Jesus plays along with this guy a little bit, and he says, um, coming back to Matthew 19, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one that is good, but if you wish to enter, the, enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said, which ones? So Jesus starts quoting some of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit murder. And the guy is mentally checking that off. I never killed anybody. You should have been around when he spoke of the Sermon on the Mount. You shall not commit murder. Check it off. I've never done that. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You shall not steal. Never done that. You shall not bear false witness. Never done that. Honor your father and mother. Oh, I'm good at that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Done it. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept. Now here is, again, so, you know, a lot of the commentaries go, what a self-righteous man. Well, yeah, but we're all guilty, okay? But with this man, as self-righteous as he may be, he's still self-aware enough to know he isn't saved. What am I lacking? What more do I need to do to get eternal life? Great question. But Jesus knows this man is not good in the sight of God. If God is the only one that's good, then the only, one, only way to be good is to be in relationship with God, right? I've often used the story, my best friend growing up was a Mormon boy. And we hit it off right away from first grade because we were the same size. And um, so we liked each other. We were boys after the same height. And, um, and I, I loved my Mormon friend, and he loved me, and I didn't realize what was going on, but his family was trying to proselytize me. And at the time, I don't think my folks knew the difference between a Methodist and a Mormon. And so, and so they weren't worried about me spending all that time in his house, and I was going, as I got a little older, I was going to his youth group, and I was at his house all the time, spending the night at his house, playing softball with the Mormons, even sometimes going to church with the Mormons. And um, it was different, but mainly I was impressed with how good my Mormon friend was. He was a much better boy than I was, hands down. And I wasn't too bad a kid, I don't think, but he was better than me. And I tell you, the time it really got me, because I, I thought, I am going to outgood my Mormon friend. And I'm at his house, and a big chocolate cake has been made for all the kids that were over there, and all the pieces were sliced exactly the same, except one piece was, was half the size of all the others. And I knew what my Mormon friend would do. He would go last so that he would be left with the little piece. And so I said, I'm going to go last. And so they go, your turn. No, I can wait. No, I'll wait. And I was going to go last. Well, not only was he better than me, he was smarter than me. Because when he, because he went second to last, there's only two pieces left, big thick one and a little skinny one. Guess what he did? He took the little skinny one. And I was so bummed because that was my one chance to be better than him and to brag about it. He was a good kid. But he's not the standard of goodness. And Scripture says that our righteousness before God is as filthy rags. I find repugnant the idea that fallen man is impossible of any goodness. 
That's not my understanding of total depravity. I understand total depravity mean that not that does not mean that fallen people are incapable of doing good or incapable of righteousness. The point is simply that our righteousness doesn't measure up to God's. My righteousness, and I do have a righteousness apart from God, is as filthy rags. The Bible doesn't say I have no righteousness. It says it doesn't count for anything. It is as filthy rags. Because the standard is God. And what is that standard? Perfection. Romans 5, I'm sorry, Matthew 5:48, the last verse of chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, good luck with that. So this man, this rich young ruler, he knows he's lived a good life. And he knows he doesn't have eternal life. So in his equation, his way of thinking, the only way to get eternal life is to be even better than what he is. Does that sound exhausting? Religion ought to be exhausting. It ought to just wear us out because you will never do enough. You will never perform high enough. You will never be good enough. How much longer can you keep up the facade? And if that's how you get saved, well, then my hat's off to those who finally just say, well, I'm done with this. But that's not how we get saved. So Jesus said, okay, I hear you. You've kept all the commandments I've just quoted. Well, then go sell everything that you have and come follow me. And you'll be perfect. You'll be complete. Now, where is that in the Bible? Is Jesus adding to Scripture? Is he given a new way to be saved? And how does that fit with just be like a child? He didn't say to the children, give away all your toys and come follow me. No. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's trying to use the law lawfully. There is a lawful way to use the law, and that is to show the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. But if we use the law as a standard for how to be saved, then we're using the law in an unlawful way. But there is a lawful way, and that is hold up the law to show the holiness of God and the impossibility of meriting salvation, of earning salvation. So what is the first of the Ten Commandments? Have no other gods before me. Hey, rich guy, I know where your heart is. I know what you really worship. Go sell everything you have. And at that moment, that guy is cut to the quick. He knows I have an idol. See, that question, that demand exposed it. You walked up to that guy and say, hey, you've got an idol. He goes, you're out of your mind. Come to my house and see if there's any idols. There's an idol in his heart. First in his life was not God. Religion, maybe, not God.
And by the way, making God first doesn't make you saved. There are a lot of people that you could not argue them away from the proposition that God is not first in their life. Extremely religious people are still in need of salvation. Having God first doesn't make you saved. But Jesus is exposing this man. God does not have the central place in your life that you think he does. Your money does. Sell it. Give it away to the poor. And that will expose where your heart is. He was unwilling to do that. The Mark account says that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. I appreciate the words words of Oswald Chambers in My Utmost for His Highest for August 17th and August 18th, the two devotionals on the rich young man. Chambers says, Have you ever heard the Master say a hard word? If you have not, I question whether you have heard him say anything. The truth is hard when you're on the wrong side of it. And there is a lot of people today that when you quote the hard sayings of Scripture, they want to say, well, that's not the Jesus I know. Maybe it isn't, (laughs) but it's the Jesus of the Bible. He says some pretty hard things. Chambers goes on and says, this man did understand what Jesus said. He heard it, and he sized up what it meant, and it broke his heart. He did not go away defiant. He went away sorrowful, thoroughly discouraged. He had come to Jesus full of the fire of earnest desire, and the word of of Jesus simply froze him. Instead of producing an enthusiastic devotion, it produced a heartbreaking discouragement. And Jesus did not go after him. The rich young ruler went away expressionless with sorrow. He had not a word to say. He had no doubt as to what Jesus said, no debate as to what it meant, and it produced in him a sorrow that had not any words. Have you ever been there? Has God's word come to you about something that you are very rich in? Temperament, personal affinities, relationships of heart and mind. And God has spoken clearly. Then you have often been expressionless with sorrow. The Lord will not go after you. He will not plead with you. But every time he meets you on that point, he will simply repeat, go sell everything. If you mean what you say, those are the conditions. Sell all that you have. Chambers says, undress yourself morally before God of everything that might be a possession until you are a mere conscious human being, and then give that to God. Isn't that how God has worked in your life? He's certainly worked in my life many times like that. Where I have to be stripped of everything that I could claim as good. Every shred of competency, 
of skill, of ability, of righteousness, of goodness. God wants us to be stripped of it all till we stand before him naked, morally naked, just as a human being, and even in that, saying, God, here I am. Beware, Chambers says, of allowing anything to soften a hard word of Jesus Christ. When the young man, verse 22, heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. So he's gone. Jesus just now, now has only his disciples with him, and so he, he just talks out loud about what they just saw. And he says, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's an understatement, as Jesus is going to explain in the next few verses. This is like the British calling the Atlantic Ocean the pond. And I was on the other side of the pond recently, and I'm glad to be back on this side of the pond now. It's typical. Jesus was the first Britisher, I guess. He this is, this is grandiose understatement. It is hard for a man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Literal camel. Biggest animal in the Middle East. Literal eye of a needle. There is nothing figurative here. This is one of those passages I use with the students at the beginning of the school year when we do Bible study methods and we talk about figurative speech and we look at, at the context and the context will tell you when something is figurative or not. And the context tells us this is not figurative. Look at the very next verse. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and they said, well then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Now, some people, they came up with this theory, and apparently there's no evidence for it, that the big, wide, double city gate had a smaller door in it that was called the, the Judas Gate, or sometimes called the Eye of the Needle. And with our big warehouses today, we have these big roll-up warehouse doors, or sometimes swinging doors, and in those doors, there will sometimes be a small door that you can walk through. That is not this. If that were the case, and you see, the thought idea is, well, they could just open up that one-man gate, and a camel could get down on its knees, and if somebody pulled hard enough from the inside and pushed hard enough from the outside, you could squeeze that camel through. That's not this. Jesus says what is impossible with men is possible with God. Now, I can't get through a, a camel through the eye of a needle. It would not look like a camel when it came out the other side, right? It's going to be just brown ooze. It's not going to be a camel. But God could get a camel through that. God can do what we can't do. And so this is blowing their minds. You have to understand that the Jewish theology was, was what we would call today prosperity theology because they believed the only reason you were rich is because God had blessed you, and God blessed you because he was happy with you. So the righteous got rich, and the unrighteous stayed poor. Prosperity theology, okay? So we didn't invent that. The Jews did. 
And so if you got this rich young ruler who's early in his life, he's already rich. You go, man, this guy, he must have been born saved. He's going, I'm not saved. I don't have eternal life. That had to be freaking him out. This guy ought to be saved. And he's telling us he's not saved. And Jesus is saying, rich men can't get saved. Oh, my. So you got all these poor guys at the bottom of the totem pole, and they're going, the guy at the top of the totem pole, top of the pyramid, can't be saved, isn't saved, and there's impossible for them to be saved. Then what hope do any of us at the bottom of the pyramid have? Exactly. You can't merit salvation. You can't work for it. It is the gift of God. That's what Jesus is trying to bring these men to. The only one who can save you is God. You cannot save yourself. Rich people, poor people, good people, bad people, doesn't make any difference. No person can save himself. It is the gift of God. Good people need to be saved. I appreciate that we have our Jewish brother, Philip, here today. He would be the first to tell you, Jews need to be saved. We have a big church in San Antonio where the pastor says that is, no, that is not the case. He used to say they needed to be saved. Now he says they don't need to be saved. Don't need to evangelize the Jews. You've got a Jewish rich young ruler who knows he isn't saved. Later we'll see Nicodemus not later, but early in Jesus' ministries in, in John, Nicodemus comes and says, Jesus just puts his finger on it. You're not saved, you need to be born again. Gentile good men need to be saved. Cornelius, lost as a goose, but a good man. Saul of Tarsus, Saul was a good man, religious man, and lost needed to be saved. Paul testified of his own people. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but they did not know God. Unbelievers can be passionate for God. doesn't make them saved. Good people are saved by abandoning their goodness and trusting in Christ alone to save them. Good people are rich in their own self-righteousness, and they have to abandon that. They have to sell what they're rich in, their own goodness, and that's why it's so hard for them to be saved. God cannot save a man who is full of himself, full of his own self there has to be brokenness, bankruptcy, moral poverty. That's why the first of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't earn salvation. But if you are saved, if you've placed your faith in Christ alone to save you, then there will be rewards in heaven. And that's what the last part of this is about. Peter goes, we've left everything, father and mother, everything, businesses. And Jesus goes, I know that. And you'll be rewarded. God is no man's debtor. 
He owes nobody anything. God is nobody's debtor. There will be rewards in heaven. It's in God's hands. But this we know. We don't go to heaven because of what we have done. We go to heaven because of what Jesus has done. And we've simply placed our faith in him. But let me just close again with this observation. This man was astute enough to know eternal life and going to heaven are not the same thing. You go to heaven when you die. You get eternal life the moment you place your faith in Christ. And this is a man very much alive who's aware of his spiritual death. Good for him. I would hope there is nobody here in this fellowship who has been coming to church perhaps for your whole life and you have yet to understand that does not give you eternal life. You either have eternal life or you don't. And it is not because you've been to church or read your Bibles or taught a Sunday school class. It's because you've placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone. And you said, Jesus, save me. And at that moment, you have eternal life. I'll close this in prayer. I thank you, God, that you've made things just simple. And that it is to the children, God, that you've given these things. And I know that what you are after with this man is to reduce him to being a child again, in possession of nothing, claiming nothing, and understanding that he has no righteousness that would merit salvation. I pray that we would all be as simple in our hearts and that we would not make complicated, God, what you have made simple.